when you discuss what is traditionally historically known as Jesus' week of passion, sometimes we struggle with the right terminology on how to define this particular week. I find myself struggling with how to define it because there's a lot of easy phrases one could utilize that don't exactly tell the, the whole story. For example, you'll hear people say, well, this is the final week of Jesus' life. Is it really? No, not at all. This is not, if this was the last week of Jesus' life, we have a big problem. Some will say, well, this is the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. But is that actually true? Because then he's resurrected from the dead, and for 40 days he continues a bit of earthly ministry before his ascension. I think the best way to maybe define the week of passion, in regards to the vernacular, I'll do my best to emulate this, but we should define it as Jesus' final week of pre-resurrection ministry. I think that might be an accurate way of defining it. A week, the final week of pre-resurrection ministry of Jesus. And as we looked at last Sunday, this particular week began on a Sunday as Jesus makes his way through some of the outer suburbs of Jerusalem, working his way from the east to the west, making his way up the Mount of Olives, coming down from the Mount of Olives, across what is known as the Kidron, then working his way up to the east side of Jerusalem, into the city. We looked at what is called Jesus' triumphal entry. An amazing moment, a predicted moment. A lot of prophecy foretelling this particular day. Daniel speaks of it very succinctly, particularly. Speaking of this particular day, that the Messiah would present himself to the Hebrew people. Jesus coming in, the multitudes filled with an excitement, an anticipation. They take Jesus and they place him on a colt, a small donkey. As the rest of the sacrificial lambs being carried on colt, Jesus is making his way and people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna the King, which is literally a plea from the psalmist to save, save us now. In their minds, they see Jesus as a savior indeed, but as a savior from the Romans, a savior from the occupation, from their persecution, a savior from their present condition. Now, before you harp too much on these people and that perspective. Aren't we sometimes guilty of the same approach to Jesus? We see Jesus, yes, as a savior, but we see him as a savior from something very temporal, something very temporary, something very in our moment and time and our space. We have a problem and we want Jesus to save us from a problem. As opposed to giving us the strength to endure through a problem. We want to escape. They come to Jesus Hosanna the king, save us now. Jesus had indeed come to save them. They didn't fully understand the ramifications that he was coming to save them from a much bigger problem than the Romans. A much bigger opposition than, than Rome came to save them from sin, from death, hell, and the grave. Jesus was coming, yes, triumphal in the way that it would end with resurrection on a Sunday. Now, Jesus, if you're looking at the chronology, he comes into the city. He comes into the temple. And he takes a moment to evaluate 
what was happening within the temple precincts, and, and specifically the outer courtyards that were designated for the Jews. So a proselyte, someone that was coming from a far land, wanting to worship God, there was a place for them. It was the outer courtyard, and yet they had made this outer courtyard into just, well, Jesus defines it as a den of thieves. A lot of nonsense, tomfoolery, shenanigans happening in the outer courtyard. Jesus comes in that evening after his entry. The city has swelled to some three million people. The Romans are on edge. The power brokers are there. And Jesus evaluates what's happening. And then he leaves. Now, we don't exactly get that from the flow of Matthew's gospel. But a chronology or harmony of the gospels indicates that Jesus... He leaves. He sees what's happening. He's angered by what's happening, but he doesn't react to his anger. He's going to be very particular in how he handles it. So he goes home. More than likely, he goes back to Bethany, and he lodges at the home of some friends. Mary, Martha, Lazarus owned a home there in Bethany. So Jesus stayed there. Now, one of the things that I love about the scene there on the temple, he comes back the next morning. He drives out the money changers. My house should be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. He's decisive. He moves into action. He gets physical. He drives out these religious people that are misrepresenting God, that are abusing the people, that are just doing evil work. He drives them out of the temple. He flips over their tables. He drives them out. And I love it. Verse 14 of Matthew 21. We're told after this, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. These were people that were kept outside of the temple because their ailments, their blindness, their lameness was viewed as an indication of some unrepentant or undealt with sin. They were considered to be unclean. So they were outside of the temple, and you had the money changers in the temple, and Jesus is like, this is the twisting of religion. This is bonk. So he drives out those that shouldn't be there, and he invites those that should be in. And for anyone that would be like, oh, well, they're blind, they shouldn't be here, he heals them, so there's no evidence. And if it was a lame person, imagine the scene, the switch of crowds. And Jesus is ministering to people and he's healing people. We got through verse 14 last Sunday, so we'll begin here with verse 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. What a sad indictment. Here we have the chief priests. We have the scribes. These were the religious head honchos. And and note, I, I highlighted the word. It wasn't what they heard. It wasn't hearsay. It's what they saw. So they see Jesus. And they don't just see Jesus You know, acting in in anger, driving out the money changers, uh, putting a stop to the charade. But they see him healing people with their own eyes. And they see the kids crying out, Hosanna. They hear what's being declared that Jesus is the son of David, this messianic title. And instead of responding to this, instead of having a positive reaction, they're indignant. They're upset. They're furious. And so they come and they say to him, do you hear what they're saying? The implications are obviously you hear what they're saying. We all hear what they're saying. Why aren't you doing anything to stop what they're saying? 
You see, these men understand the implications. They understand the titling. They understand the phrases. They understand the loaded language. They understand that the people are declaring not just Jesus to be a prophet from Nazareth, not just to be a good moral teacher. They're declaring Jesus to be the prophesied king of Israel, the son of David, the awaited one. They're crying out. They're declaring him. Do you hear what they're saying? And since obviously you do, why aren't you stopping them? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? And then he quotes from Psalms 8. He says, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. What a statement by Jesus. Yeah, I love and we'll see Jesus use this phrase. We've seen it before. We'll see it used. Have you, not, have you never read? These were the guys that had memorized the Old Testament. Like, Jesus is implying something to them. Obviously, you've read this. Why don't you, why don't you understand it? Why aren't you acting appropriate? Hey, you hear what they're saying about you. Why aren't you stopping it? Oh, you've heard what the Scripture says. Why aren't you worshiping? Why aren't you responding? You see, Jesus is, is skipping the argument, and he's going right to the soul. Right to the heart, right to what's happening. He's saying, you guys know what's going on. And you're still resisting it. And it's the source of this indignation. You know the truth, but you're not allowing the truth to set you free. And you will find, and you see this within our culture, that people that reject the truth, it's not just, let's get along. People that reject the truth, because it pricks the conscience, they then attack the truth. You see, we've been lulled into this false sense that we can have peace with a falsehood. That truth can stand side by side with the lie. Understand the lie won't stand side by side. Why? Because the truth condemns it, accuses it, highlights it, points it out. People are like, well, well why, why is it that it just seems like Christians are being picked on these days? And it's true. Have you ever thought that? You don't see anybody taking Muhammad's name in vain on television. For some reason, it's just Jesus' name that people want to take advantage of. You know, you don't see a lot of jokes about Buddha. It, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. A, a, a pseudo-Christian state. Christian State, North Carolina, the NBA, because of a transgender bathroom law, said, we can't play basketball in your state. And they removed the All-Star game, right? Because of those Christian bigots. You know where they're playing the All-Star game this week? In Utah. In Utah, which has just passed even more stringent transgender laws and for a good chunk of their history, were full-blown polygamists. But why does it seem like Utah gets a pass? That's because Mormonism isn't a threat to the falsehood. Because it's also false. You see, Christians are attacked. Why? Because we hold the truth. For Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We stand here, and everyone else stands against us equally. 
from all the other world religions to what we might classify as the cults, to even beyond that, the secularists, the atheists, the communists. They all hate Christians. Why? Because we hold to the truth, and it ticks them off. It pricks a conscience. Christians. So Jesus, do you not hear what they're saying? Implying, why aren't you stopping it? Jesus says, have you not read? Obviously you have. Why are you not worshiping? Now in the morning, verse 18, as Jesus returned to the city, he was hungry. I, again, I, maybe I'm weird. I am weird. That, that, I, I did the same thing. Do you not know that I am weird? Obviously you know that I am weird. I've highlighted he was hungry. I like that. You know, this is the only time you have a mention of Jesus being hungry in the scriptures. It's very interesting to me. He's hungry. I hope you, you know that Jesus was a human being. <laughs> and we see the humanity. Jesus woke up in the morning and guess what? He jones for some Mickey D's or Chick-fil-A biscuit. He was hungry. Like he hungered. And Jesus slept. Jesus stubbed his toe. Jesus experienced pain. He was hungry. Jesus woke up and was like, I need a breakfast burrito. You know, I mean, I love that about Jesus. Jesus, by the way, I'm going to get, I, I got to be very careful because I can get in trouble. Jesus was a bit of a foodie. I mean, really. You know, people, people have a perception of Jesus. I, I think Jesus was a bit overweight. I mean, just by the amount of food that he eats. You know, Jesus is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to perform like the, what's the most famous miracle? Feeding of the 5,000, you know, food. Bread, fish, first miracle, wine. Jesus is like, you know, I'm going to go to heaven. I need to leave something for my followers to remember me by. What does he pick? Food, bread, and wine. Jesus, first thing we do in heaven. I'm so glad you guys are here. Let's eat. Marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus loved food. And he was hungry. So he gets up. He's, he's going to go from Bethany back over the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron, into the city. He wakes up. He's hungry. Verse 19, and he sees a fig tree by the road. And he came to it, and he found nothing on it but leaves. And so he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. Kind of seems like an overreaction, you know. Jesus is hungry. He's making his way. He's like, oh, there's this fig tree. Now, the, the indication, the description here, that, that it had leaves. Understand, while this is early in the season for figs, leaves and figs come at the same time. So Jesus sees this fig tree, and he sees leaves on it, which are an indicator that there should also be fruit. So he goes expecting there to be fruit on a fig tree because the fig tree has, bl has bloomed. Hey, I got figs. Come eat. Jesus gets there, and he's like, there's no figs. You got leaves, but there's no fruit. And so he does what every rational person does. He curses it. Have you ever done that? 
Have you ever gone to McDonald's at, at, at 1032 and cursed it for there were no more biscuits? I don't want a hamburger. It's 1032. I want a sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit. McGriddle, something. Jesus curses the fig tree. And then it withers. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled. Saying, how did the fig tree wither, wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now this is such an interesting section of Scripture. And there's a lot of context that's important for our understanding of what Jesus is saying and, and also what he's not. Because some of these passages have been cherry-picked out to be interpreted in all kinds of ways that they shouldn't be. And have particular meanings that, that aren't relevant or applicable. The fig tree. What's happening? Now, on the surface, you should note that Typologically, the fig tree had become synonymous, representative of Israel, the fig tree. And, and there's a lot of examples to this, a lot of, 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 of passages of Scripture that make this correlation to Israel being represented by the fig tree. And thus the application here of Jesus looking at Israel and cursing her, she would wither and die. And there's an application to that. I don't fully buy into it, honestly. And then some will even say, well, it's Judaism. It's, it's, it was the religion of the day. And I think we are getting closer in that interpretation. Because, again, you have these religious leaders. And you have this conflict that's happening between Jesus and these people. And indeed, what? They bore an outward reflection of holiness. On the surface, they looked as though they should have fruit. And yet, they were empty. They were fruitless. They were shallow. Again, Jesus, again, playing on the idea, he will call them and has called them hypocrites, right? You looked apart, but you're not. You're just playing a role. And in that sense, you can understand the interpretation of Jesus seeing leaves. Hey, there should be fruit. And then he gets closer. He's like, no, there's no fruit. You look holy, but you're not. You look righteous, but you're wicked. You look like you got it all under control, but you're really evil. You're fruitless. You're a waste of my time. And, and some of the interpretation here could be that Jesus is cursing dead religion in that context. I think it's even broader than that, though, honestly. I think it's a bit broader than that. I, I'm a firm believer in what's known as the law of first mention. And this is just a good tool when it comes to studying the Bible that help you understand uh, maybe deeper imagery than just like the surface. It's the idea that, that the way something gets introduced in the Bible, the first mention, will set kind of a trajectory by which you can understand that item and the imagery of that item as it pops up throughout the remainder of Scripture. So, is Jesus just cursing 
the fig leaf, the fig leaf because it's representative of, of Israel or Judaism, or is there something broader happening? I would say there's something broader because of first mention. If you turn with me, and we won't be there long. You can go all the way to the beginning of your book. The book is literally called Beginnings. The book of Genesis. Chapter 3. We're told that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Eve, the serpent, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And she's referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the serpent, Satan, said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, so she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband Adam with her, and he ate. Then the eyes, and all of humanity changes in this moment, the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed, note, fig leaves together, and made themselves covering. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave whom you gave to be with me he blames the woman and god she gave me of the tree and ate and and then and then we go through the cursings fast forward to verse 20 adam called his wife's name eve because she was the mother of all living things verse 21 also for adam and his wife the lord god made tunics of skin and clothed them Verse 24, so he drove out man from the Garden of Eden, placed cherubim east of the garden, flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Familiar story. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. They sin. They make a decision to rebel against the directed commands of God. And in the moment, according to verse 7, that they sinned, something happened inside of them. Something changed immediately. It was so immediate and so pronounced that they recognized it. They understood it. Immediately within themselves, there was an awareness. Oh, snap. Something's wrong. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you'll die. And we just ate of it, and it feels like something died. They recognized, we're told, and there's some language being used here that's significant. That They, they, they recognized that they were naked. They were vulnerable. They were self-aware, self self-conscious. 
And what's amazing about this is what was the inclination of man in his sin to do? His immediate compulsion was to cover himself. Understand, he was naked before he sinned. He was equally naked after. Something changed, so now he's not cool with being naked. Something is broken, something is wrong, something is marred, and I need to cover it up. I need to hide it. And so what does he do? He uses fig leaves to cover. Now, you know, you got to have a little sympathy to Adam and Eve. You know, God's coming, and they're kind of in a rush. But fig leaves are a terrible covering. I mean, do you know any, do you have any garments made out of fig leaves? Probably not. Not only uh, do, they, do, do they not endure, you know, you can sew yourself a garment of fig leaves. It's not going to last the day. It's going to dry out, get brittle, and fall apart. Not only that, but a fig leaf is prickly. It's not even comfortable. It's an ineffective covering. So man here in the garden after sin covers himself, but he covers himself with something that is completely ineffective to cover. And so God comes down, they have this exchange, he pronounces some curses. They're going to be kicked out of the garden, so much so an angel's going to be placed there at the entrance, this flaming sword, You're, you don't have access to the tree of life. You're going to die, which was an act of grace. God would not allow man and his sinful state to live forever. But before he sends them out, God says, okay, <laughs> we've got to deal with these clothes. Your digs are not working. These fig leaves aren't jiving. And so we're told what? That God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Where did he get the tunics of skin? Old Navy? A sail on fleece. No. In fact, most biblical scholars, because the next chapter... You find Adam bringing his two sons probably to the Garden of Eden to offer a sacrifice. And, and the accepted sacrifice was what? It was a blood offering. It was a lamb. Cain's was rejected. A lot of people are like, well, where did they get the notion of God accepting a blood offering? Well, it seems that the justification for this is in the way God made clothing. Because again, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. And clothed them. God made the first offering in a garden to provide effective clothing for the, for the man and woman he loved because the fig leaves didn't work and would never work. Now, who's walking in the garden? Oh, well, Zach, it's the Lord God. Says that, did you not read it? Yeah, but walking. So there is a physical manifestation of the presence of God. I don't want to get into the whole complex nature. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one having the exchange. Jesus is the one walking. Jesus is the one making the offering, providing the skins. Jesus is there. Now, keep that in mind. Flip all the way back to where we were. Now, in the morning, Jesus returned to the city. He was hungry. 
And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. It said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. Here's Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. He's going to die for the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God. He's going to bleed and die for what? To provide an effectual covering for our sin. And on his way to Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree. You know what I think he's thinking about? The garden. The fig tree. And he sees the leaves. And in his mind, I can imagine Jesus picturing Adam and Eve. You know, the fig leaves. And how silly and ridiculous it was. How sad. Man's best attempt at covering sin was fig leaves. And he looks at that fig tree and he's like, you know what? You didn't work then and you don't work now. I'm going to curse you forever. Because I'm going to provide a covering. Yes, can it apply to Israel? Sure. Does it apply to Judaism? No doubt. But I think it speaks to something much broader. It's any attempt by man to cover his sin apart from Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one that can actually atone. He's the only one that can satisfy what's required. Now, it's within that context of salvation that the disciples, they're like, what's going on? And then Jesus, again, look at it again. He says, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And <clears throat> whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. The goal of the Christian experience is fruitfulness. That is the goal. The goal is for our lives to become more and more like Jesus, to demonstrate more and more of who Jesus is, to produce fruit, goodness, good things. That is the goal. The question is, is well, how do I produce goodness, godliness? Do I do it, or by definition, must God do it? You see, religion sets up a, a, a structure by which you attempt to make yourself a better person. And it'll oblige you. It'll give you all kinds of things to do. All kinds of things to do, all kinds of things not to do. I mean, it'll set up an entire structure by which not only can you earn God's favor, but you can be a better person. And Jesus looks at it and he's like, yeah, but you're not. And it's fruitless. The goal is fruit. So how do we end up with fruit? How are we a tree with fruit? That's satisfying, that's enjoyable. Is it through what we do? Or is, it a, is there a different mechanism? And the Bible will speak profoundly that it's not about you. To the point that fruit is defined in the Christian as what? The fruit of you? No. The fruit of the, I didn't hear you. There we go. The fruit of the Spirit, which means it's something completely independent of you. It's something that is produced from you. 
from a different source other than you. It's produced by the Spirit of God, of Jesus, working in you and then yielding through you godliness. If there's anything in Zach Adams that someone can say, hey, that's godly, guess where the source of it is? God. Anything you're like, that's a lot of Zach. Guess where the source of that is? Zach. The fruit of Zach is toxic. The fruit of the Spirit working through Zach, peace, love, kindness, gentleness. Twice, Paul will define what should be produced from our life as the fruit of the Spirit, both in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5. You can read about that on your own. So Jesus, in the context of salvation, and then what produces fruit, he tells the disciples, if you want fruit, believe in me. Have faith in me. In fact, what will be produced from your life if you put your trust in me will be so radical, it would be the equivalent of of telling a mountain to go into the sea. Because let's be real. I mean, for good things to come out of us, that's pretty astounding. Well, I want to be able to tell Stone Mountain to go into Lake Lanier. That'd be cool. Yeah, that would be cool. I, I, won't, I won't deny that. That would be pretty sweet. In fact, people would look at that and be saying, well, Wow. But if you actually get to know Zach and you look at me loving my wife, that's equally a miracle. Or just being nice to people. Like that's equally a miracle. Like when you understand, as the Bible says, that there's nothing good about you. None are good, no, not one. In fact, the Bible says even our our goodness, even our best attempts are as dirty rags. It's a very cleaned up way of saying minstrel cloths. They're gross. That's the best we got. The fact we produce any fruit at all is simply a miracle of of divine intervention. Taking out our heart of stone and replacing it with his spirit. So Jesus looks at this fig tree. It's got all of its leaves. It's got no fruit. It's like you've never had fruit. You've promised it. You've led a lot of people astray thinking they can get it that way. And then Jesus points to himself. Now, verse 23. Before I get to verse 23, that should give you a deeper context to like verse 22. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. If you just cherry pick that verse, the indication is like, (laughs) yeah. It puts God as the genie in a bottle. That if you, Christina Aguilera, rub it the right way, he'll give you whatever you want. Right? Well, if I believe and I have faith, God will give me whatever I want. Context is what? Fruit. So if you're like, Lord, I don't see it, I don't have it, I don't know where it can come from, but I need this producing out of me. My wife needs it, my kids need it, my coworkers need it, the world needs it. A lot more of you and a lot less of me. In that context, if you ask in prayer and you believe, you'll receive it. He'll do it. 
Now, verse 23, when Jesus came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. That's pretty rude. He's in the middle of a Bible study. And they cut him off. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, they do have a right to ask this question. Jesus, I mean, has done a few very dramatic things. Raised a lot of eyebrows. I mean, he went into the temple. He drove out the money changers. Then he starts healing people. Then he curses a fig tree because it didn't give him a breakfast burrito. I mean, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority? So they want to know. So Jesus answered, and he said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So let's play a little tit for tat. You ask me a question, I ask you a question. You answer my question, I'll answer your question. Deal? So Jesus continues. He says, the baptism of John. Where was it from? Was it from heaven or from men? It's a good question. And they reason, Matthew says, among themselves, saying amongst themselves, well, guys, you know, if we say it was from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, well, we fear the multitudes, for all count John as a prophet. They're kind of in a quandary. John the Baptist, fellas, authority from heaven or men? And they're right. If they say heaven, they have a problem because they rejected John. And then that problem then gets carried over to how they're rejecting him. It's the idea. On the flip side, and this is correct and gives us some insight into the multitude, they equally know that if they're like, well, John's authority wasn't from heaven, it was from men. They, people love John. And so the whole multitude, again, Jerusalem swelled packed capacity, it's going to be like, huh? Say that again? And they fear the multitudes, rightly so. So they're kind of caught. So verse 27, they answered Jesus, and they said, we do not know. <laughs> of course they knew. They're just chicken. So Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Again, keep in mind, Jesus is not hiding anything. And he's not dodging the question. Jesus accepted the praise, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. Jesus has already called them on the carpet. Like, let's quit with the pleasantries of talking about who I am. Let's now talk about whether or not you're going to accept who I am. We're not playing a game anymore. Jesus is on the way to the cross. We're not playing 4D chess you know who I am. You knew who John was. You rejected John. Now you also have to make a decision about me. That's the essence of it. And I'm not going to play this game anymore. Now, again, there's no breaks here. It just kind of flows. So Jesus, verse 28, he says, But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go, work today in my vineyard. So the son answered and said, I will not. 
<laughs> no. But afterwards, he regretted it. And he went. So the first son, go work in my vineyard. Ah, I'd rather sit and play video games. So he goes back to his Xbox. But he starts to regret it. He's like, ah, said the wrong thing. And there's a, a change of will. How do we know that? Because there's a change of action. The father didn't heap any condemnation on the son. Didn't say, oh, I'm cutting you out of the will. Kind of moves right along, right? This is kind of the way the story unfolds. Hey, go work in the vineyard. Nope. That's it. And so the son's not being compelled. He's not being guilted. Like something happens naturally within the heart of the son. He's like, yeah, yeah, man. I really don't want to. But I probably really should. It is, I am the son. This is my father's vineyard. It's my inheritance. Yeah, I should, you know, I, okay. We're told, again, afterwards, he regretted it. And he went. This word regret in the Greek can equally be translated as repented. The man thought about it, changed his mind about it, and then acted. That's, that's repentance. You know, there's a difference. Uh, you'll run into people all the time that outwardly seem very sorry about what it, they did. They're crying. They're upset. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I did this. It was so wrong. I hurt these people. How do you know if it's real or not? Well, the Bible tells us that Godly sorrow leads a man to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads a man to destruction. On the surface, the both, they both can look alike. I'm so sorry. But if you're really sorry, what then follows? Action. A change of behavior. How do we know the young man was sorry that he had responded to his dad in such a way? He got off his butt and went and worked in the field. That's how you know he's sorry. That's how you know repentance yielded what? A fruit. That's not the end of the story. Jesus continues. He says, then he came, speaking of the, the, the father here, to the second son. And he said, likewise. So he invites the man to go work in the vineyard. And the young man answered and he said, I go, sir. So he's like, sure, yeah, done. But he didn't go. So Jesus then asks, he says, which of the two did the will of his father? And so they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards repent or relent and believe him. If there was a microphone, he'd drop it, you know? 
I mean, what a lesson. I mean, the implications are, are pretty profound. He's speaking to the religious leaders, and he's talking about the essence of, of, of the heart of it all. With your mouth, you say the right things. With your feet, you don't do the right things. Go work in my vineyard. Yes, yeah, sure, got it. But you don't. And then even those that might initially be like, yeah, I don't want to, they're being honest. See, the difference is honesty. The other son doesn't want to work in the vineyard either. But he lies. He says, sure, I'll go. Knowing full well he won't. And he doesn't feel bad about it. There's no repentance. There's nothing that manifests. But the first son, at least it was honest. No. <laughs> and then he thought about it. And he said, yes. And Jesus is like, that's the key. That's the key. Here, another parable. Verse 33. <laughs> Here, another parable that Zach can't cover in the next 10 minutes. So, you know what? We'll just stop there. There's enough to chew on. There's enough to unpack. You know, we're really good. We're really good at saying the right thing. I've noticed this with my kids. I've noticed this with my kids. I've got to do a better job at this as a, as a parent. But, you know, my kids have, have figured out that when they do something bad, there is kind of a magic word that helps. I'm sorry. No, it's okay, buddy. And guess what t tends to happen? They do the same thing again. Oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. No, you're not. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, I'm going to smack your butt. Now, isn't it so easy for us to play Christian with our words, to talk a good game? But if you really look, there's no fruit produced. There's no action. I'm not going to try to put this in, I'm not going to try to frame this in, in a way that's going to really heap some condemnation on you. I'm not going to place this like within a, a week-long evaluation. Fruit doesn't, isn't produced in a week, right? But let's like, let's go back maybe over a year. Give it a year. Think about your life over the last year. Is there fruit? Is there parts of you that have really decreased and a lot of Jesus that's kind of increased? Has there been change, transformation? You know, you can't have fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit of the fruit. We're to walk in the Spirit so that we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. How do we not fulfill the lust of the flesh? Twelve steps for recovery? No, we walk in the Spirit. We live in the Spirit. We abide in the Spirit. 
But if we're doing that, there should be things that are manifesting. Now, don't get me wrong. So I went to Bible college years ago. And after my first semester, and I was warned, man, like, like a month in, this older fellow kind of pulled me aside. And I was like, man, I am immersed in God's word all day long. This is great. I mean, I'm studying the scriptures. I've got, I've got opportunities to worship. And, and this is, man, I, I, I have not had like this concentrated amount of Jesus ever before. Why do I look at my life and I feel terrible? He goes, well, that's, that's what's going to happen. I said, well, why? He says, well, well, Peter talks about beholding a mirror. You know, the closer you get to a mirror, the uglier you get. Speak for yourself. No, seriously, I, I look great from like 10 feet. But man, all right, three, low lit. But, you know, you get your face all the way up into that mirror, and you're like, look at the blackheads, you know, my pores. The closer we get to Jesus, there, there is going to be an awareness of frailty. You see this in the life of Paul. Paul will, like, there's this progression. He's like, hey, man, I'm a sinner. And then, like, later on in his life, he's like, he's like <laughs> I sin more than you guys. Paul, the apostle Paul. And at the end of his life, he, he'll make the statement, I am the chiefest of all sinners. Well, if you're comparing yourself to Jesus, right, you'll never add up. So I'm not, I'm not trying to heap a condemnation on you in that sense. There's an ideal we'll never achieve. <laughs> but practically, but practically, where in your life have you just been playing lip service? Do you have a lot of show but no fruit? Are you saying yes, 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 but you're never acting? Nothing's ever manifesting. Where are you abiding in the Spirit? And you're like, you know, I got a long way to go. You know, how about this? Oh, this is dangerous. I'm going to have to do this. If you really want to know, if you really want to know, ask your spouse. Say, hey, honey, how over the last year have you seen more of Jesus coming from my life? ruh row. <laughs> Pastor, what are you doing? But seriously, Isn't that the way it should be? Hey, neighbor, been a long year. You experienced more Jesus from me? No. You're a jerk. Yeah, but like for Jesus? No. Father, Lord, 